Um, so I guess over you know the years I've learned um, not to make any assumptions. And one story is that we had a married couple come into the Vincent house, and the husband had had a heart attack, and uh, he was fired. He was not able to go back to work. The mom was pregnant with twins and bed rest. They owned a house, uh, I believe, in northwest Allen County. They had a savings. They just went through it all. Welcome back to the Neighboring Podcast. I'm Andrew Hoffman, Director of Neighboring for Wayne. And Neighboring Podcast is the place where we attempt to learn what it means to be a good neighbor. We interview uh, neighbors themselves, friends, corporate leaders, uh, business leaders, and uh, some nonprofit leaders like we have today. We have Denise Andorfer of the Vincent Village, uh, who has been a nonprofit leader for uh coming close to eight, nine years at Vincent Village and an organization that's been specifically trying to address uh, poverty and housing-related issues in a lower-income neighborhood in Fort Wayne for uh, quite a long time. So today's conversation, we are wanting to really talk about you know, what does long-term development look like? What does it look like as an, as an organization that has made a commitment to really a set geographic boundary in a community and has been spending decades attempting to address those issues by building relationships with neighbors, solving uh, housing-related problems, and addressing all of the, the issues that go along with generational poverty and a wide variety of things facing our communities that is present in any and every neighborhood across the country. So Denise, thank you for being here. Thank you for our relationship and our friendship that's been developing as we uh, spend a lot of time just asking bigger questions and really wrestling with the bigger questions that are facing not only uh, what does it take to run an organization addressing these issues and the challenges that that takes, but when we get really into the relationships we're having with those we're serving and wanting the best for them and trying to understand their situations and dealing with the nuances and then uh, all the other factors. There's a lot that goes on to the work that you're doing. So today I hope to interview you and introduce our audience to Vincent Village and talking about the history and the background. So why don't you kick us off? Thank you again for being here and tell us a little bit more about Vincent Village and uh, how and when it got started. I don't know that I know the full kind of genesis story okay. of Vincent Village. It's, um, it's a very cool story. It dates back to December of 1989. Um, the St. Hyacinth Parish, um, Catholic Parish under the Diocese of Fort Wayne South Bend um, and Catholic School um, was going to be closing down um, in the Oxford neighborhood on Holton near the corner of Holton and Pontiac. Um, and a group of community leaders got together and started discussing um, what spaces would become available and how they could be best used for community need. Well, back in the late 90s, there was lots of discussion going on about services to homeless families and the rise of homelessness and what communities could be doing, um, in including federal funding that was finally being brought to the table. So there's a group of community leaders that were having these dialogues um, Pastor uh, or Bishop um, Darcy uh, from the Diocese of Fort Wayne, South Bend, uh, Pastor Fraser from Trinity English Lutheran, uh, people like uh, Councilman uh, Sam Tallarico Sr., 
um, was at the table. Uh, Rabbi Katz was at the table. So just a number of community leaders um, at the table and saying, you know, what can we do? We ha- we have to, we have a call to action. Otto Bonahum, and then of course John Tipman Sr., who is our um, founder, um, and uh, got together and decided that the old convent would be used to shelter homeless families. And the Vincent house uh, was a four-bedroom brick, two-story house. And um, the nuns had lived there. Um, They decided a nun would be in charge, and they would open their doors December, I believe, 18th of 1989 to... the community. Um, we're actually planning a celebration um, this December, but we have just the coolest scrapbook that goes back to the prayers that were said, the pictures, mm. and the Journal Gazette news clippings of the communities coming together to meet the needs of homeless families. So, um, yeah, um, so fast forward 30 years later, and um, it's continued to grow, change, morph. It was, again, extremely grassroots. A group of community members coming together and saying we can do better, which we still are coming together and saying that 30 years later, mm-hmm. but we've experienced so much um, growth, and um, um, it just uh, it, it has gone from serving four to six families in the initial year in 1989 to now. Our numbers are usually between 85 and 90 families that will not only provide housing for but also provide wraparound services. So at any given time, you know, we're, we're the landlord and the social worker um, for 42 families, 24 hours a day um, in our neighborhood. Um, I, I brought our map. The red houses um, indicate the houses that Vincent Village owns. And throughout the last 30 years, our community housing development organization, which is a HUD designation, a CHOTO, um, has... Um, used home funds to acquire and rehab these homes and make them affordable and keep them up and make the rent reasonable, um, have energy efficient utilities uh, for hardworking low-income families. Uh, For our audience, describe what a CHOTO is. It's an acronym that's popular in our our realm, but give a brief overview of what a CHOTO stands for and what it is. Sure, It's a community housing development organization. And um, it has a special relationship with um, what, what we call private jurisdictions or, or public jurisdictions, I'm sorry, such as community government, such as cities, um, counties, um, entities that get uh, home funds from the federal government through HUD. There's lots of regulations attached, um, lots of rulings on what it can be used for, is there operating costs, what capital costs, reasonableness. But one of the big um, things that, um, that encompasses the CHOTO is that one-third of the board of directors has to be low-income. They either have to be personally low-income at below 80% of AMI, area median income, or they have to live in a neighborhood in a zip code where the average median um, income is below that. So it, it's it's meant to have a representation of people who need affordable housing. And you and I, I think, have had this conversation before. A lot of times we want to go into neighborhoods or we want to um, do things for groups or populations, and sometimes they're not at the table 
to yeah. be part of the conversation, be part of the solution. And, and they have very valuable insight to give us um, that would really make us more successful mm-hmm. at what we do. And so that's that I think is what is unique about it. Um, so government um, entities like the city of Fort Wayne has a certain percentage of home funds each year that HUD tells it it has to give to a Chodo. Mm. And so um, it has that relationship. So it's always investing in affordable yeah. housing. So, um, yeah, so we um, have been acquiring, rehabbing since the late 90s. Um, home funds were much more plentiful. The houses are on affordability periods then. We have to have our rental logs inspected. The homes have to be inspected. Um, we, we have to keep them affordable for, let's say if we do a new house, 20 years. So I always say it's like raising a child. It's a 20 year relationship. <laughs> Although some of us with children over 20 know that it goes, spans. <laughs> sure. The, the dependency spans many more years after that. But, um, so yeah, we've been successful and that's, um, what has helped us build this neighborhood up. Um, we've also been acquiring empty lots that, um, where the city has, um, torn down, um, houses that were condemned. So it's a great, um, partnership to be able to go in with a, a vision for filling in all those lots with new housing because, um, the neighbors certainly living there, um, were, were very upset that a, a house was in that condition and then probably had to sit a couple years before it was demolished. And yeah. they're excited that it's gone. It's not a safety hazard. It's not attracting crime. Um, but so it's, um, you know, when I look at the map of the neighborhood, it's just, it's exciting to see. Um, uh, the other thing about a Chodo, it has a geographic boundary and ours has been um, Hannah to Anthony to Creighton to Rudisol. However, we've primarily stayed within the um, Bowser, Holton, Reed. Um, we just went over on Lily Street in the last year because uh, one of the properties was budding up to the Bottleworks Lofts project that um, we have been working on for the last five years. So. Um, yeah, when we look at the map, um, we have actually sold a couple houses in the last couple years. One we sold to a graduating tenant that bought it because it was just a couple miles away. And then we sold a house in McKinney to actually one of our tenants, um, employers (laughs) who, um, they were, um, one of those situations where he was in year three it was a single dad he just wasn't compliant with a lot of the rules and and that's the thing about our program we have a niche um we have lots of um um, requirements we have lots of accountability Uh, we find that most people um while they're it's kind of like growing up and going i'm so glad my parents had rules for me because it really helped me establish self-discipline and in some ways it's similar because after the fact people say I'm I'm so glad you held me accountable for my behavior and we don't often do that with adults right because eh, they're adults Um, they shouldn't have to do anything the government doesn't like as it relates to housing to force anything they want everything to be voluntary so we've just created this um, neighborhood model that um 
really focuses in on our mission, which is self-sufficiency. Sure. So tell me, get paint a picture for the audience um, about the Oxford neighborhood. Give some context. Uh, try to describe the Oxford neighborhood, the neighborhood that you've been mm-hmm. working at for so long. Some people may be familiar with the, with the Oxford neighborhood because it's been it's gotten a little bit more attention here lately due to another organization and effort in that area, which is complementary to to your work in the Ten Points Coalition. But paint a picture of the Oxford neighborhood. Mm-hmm. What does what does it look like if, to live there? What is what some nuggets for, of its history that are mm-hmm. important to where we you are today? Mm-hmm. Well, it, it has a lot of uh, history with strong leadership, um, with the association, Mary Morris. There's some names of some folks. It actually has the only neighborhood association building um, in our city. Um, and actually, you guys are working with us on trying to get it um, revitalized because it's dilapidated. So um, um, this strong neighborhood in the 70s was gifted this building, and I believe it was a city of Fort Wayne building. Um, the upper of it is an apartment, which was meant to draw income, so for the long-term upkeep of the association building which actually sits at the corner of Oxford and Holton um, on the um, north northeast side of that corner. And um, with Oxford neighborhoods spanning south of Pontiac, north of Pontiac is the Renaissance Point. If you think of the Renaissance Point Y, if you think of the Renaissance Point affordable housing development that Kevin Biggs did, um, that all sits north of Pontiac. So we're talking about Oxford being south of, of Pontiac and going all the way down, um, I believe, even past Rudisil. Um, so um, strong history of grassroots leadership by neighbors, um, 45% home ownership, which... You know, that's, that's fairly high. It's it's fairly high. 55% uh, runners, a very small you know a small committed group of homeowners that have continued to um, try to meet whether it's three or four neighbors, whether it's 15, 20. So um, it's it's a committed group. They have a history of just wanting um, to provide. Um, some services and a meeting place um, with the association building to where neighbors could feel that sense of identity. Unfortunately, in the the last year, it's been closed for renovation, and we're actually been hosting the neighborhood association at our Sally Wygan Center. Um, but the, there's a goal of getting it revitalized. So that's kind of the biggest um, thing to our vested neighbors that's happening right now. Um, in the neighborhood, there's very limited um, food choices, grocery stores. Um, I believe it's a family dollar now on South Anthony near Rudisol. Um, so it's, there's definitely been some challenges. We have a new Head Start opening next month in our St. Hyacinth Community Center that technically the address will be on Reed. So they're near the corner of Pontiac and Reed. 75 three to five-year-olds will now have a full-day Head Start program. Sure. So, so very exciting. So there are things, um, there are things happening. The Wilson Center sits within the neighborhood. Um, 
Um, and of course, most notably, um, the Ten Point Coalition has come into the Oxford neighborhood. The, the Weiser Park um, Parks and Rec building that has an array of services, youth programs, um, is there and just extremely active and vested in the neighborhood as well. Denise, how did you uh, how did you get involved with Vince Village? Because you were not the founder and you've not been there I'm thirty not the years. Um, I'm only the second, really the second director. I mean, the first director was one of the sisters, and then Ann, Ann Helmke came and worked a lot with the home funds and building up the neighborhood. And um, I came in actually in 2012, but I had been director of Boys and Girls Club of Fort Wayne um, in the um, 20. 2003 to 2006 um, in that kind of era and um, which was really only a couple miles away but the funny thing is I didn't know anything about Vincent Village and a good friend of mine Josette Ryder who's director of um, Big Brothers Big Sisters I remember her talking about village houses and her little sister um, at that time was living in had had lived in the shelter with one of our families and um, moved out into one of the houses and I kept remember her saying they were homeless they're in a village house and I kept thinking to myself what in the world is a village house and she kept saying it's right off Pontiac and had no idea um I had even way back in the um gosh um mid early 90s been teaching drug prevention up at the Pontiac um, Youth Center through Boys and Girls Club of Fort Wayne also. So I was familiar with the neighborhood. I started my career in juvenile probation in uh, 1989. So I knew the neighborhood from home visits and knew Eden Green and some of the area uh, complexes from going in and uh, meeting with families. Um, but when I drove down the street, I had relocated to Northern Virginia. I came back, I did some teaching at Indiana Tech, and um, uh, my dad was good friends with Sally Wigan, one of the founders, and um, she was talking to my dad about making a contribution to Vincent Village, which she was very notable for calling all her friends and saying, because that's how a very small group of people make something happen. They all use their connections. And so Sally mentioned to my dad that, that Ann was retiring, and, and Dad said, well, you know, my daughter is, you know, n never going to be a lifetime college professor. Um, you know, that might be something she wants to look at as she's returned to Fort Wayne. So I remember driving down the street wondering, wow, this is like, I didn't know this was back here. Here's this old Polish parish and school, and here's all these houses, and here's this house that just it, it kept being rehabbed and it's just getting bigger and bigger and bigger and it's um and attached was a little house and i'm thinking what in the world is even going on here with this little house and then there was another like a big shed and um well the little house was actually the youth center so when you went in just a couple years before that they attached the two houses so there's an internal walkway so from the outside, you're thinking, here's two houses, and they're linked together, and this is very interesting and creative. And um, I just remember pulling up and walking around and looking around and then hearing about the houses and going, this is very cool. This is very grassroots. This is very needed. Um, this is a ministry. This is These are people that are... 
um, just ministering to people right here where they live, providing services. It's just, it's really all just happening right here. And I just thought it was, um, I just thought I had a ton of potential because I knew if I didn't know about it, and I had also been uh, a funder at PNC with their foundations, and I thought if I don't know about this, and there's a lot of other people that don't, and it it, it needs um, broader support because it's it's very much needed, and it's just a good use of resources because you could take our old churches and schools, yeah. and you could just. Sure leave them there sitting and you could go north or southwest and just build something new and and leave all this rich history behind and i just think it's a good use it's a good frugal use it's a good in a way it's a good business model but then you do a capital needs assessment on a 20 25 square foot old building and you go wow this is gonna take a lot of money. Yeah, to redevelopment this up. is not the same as building new for sure, especially in old old neighborhoods yeah. and the way things were built and the re, remodeling. And but that's part of the the narrative and the story of of redemption and redeeming and returning things back to back to one place. And so it makes it harder for us to uh, sell that picture to mm-hmm. people that have the resources that understand what redevelopment looks like or development looks like and so uh, we're often fighting or bringing the narrative and the story into the place that changes the economics for people and the story is a part of that which i want to hear walk through uh, a couple of case scenarios or what is what does it look like for a client what are the scenarios uh, if you have a few stories in mind mm-hmm. of somebody that, uh, what life looked like before Vince Village, what does it look like during their time there? And then uh, what does it look like after time at Vince mm-hmm. Village? Mm-hmm. What's interesting is every single story is so unique. What brings people to the crisis of homelessness? Um, it, it, there, there's just so many different factors. We have everything from people that own their own homes um, that experienced health crisis. We have people with college degrees. Um, so I guess over you know the years, I've learned um, not to make any assumptions. And one story is that we had a married couple come into the Vincent house, and the husband had had a heart attack, and uh, he was fired. He was not able to go back to work. The mom was pregnant with twins and bed rest. They owned a house, uh, I believe, in Northwest Allen County. They had a savings. They just went through it all. And then, you know, those are stressful times for family relationships, right? You know, couch surfing. Everybody's had a friend or a relative who's fallen on hard times. Who takes them in? You know, what structure do you provide for them? How long is it going to be? And it can really strain relationships. And so they ended up having strained relationships with their family, some in town, some not, and brought them to the Vincent house. And um, really very challenging. Every family gets one bedroom. So if you're a married couple with four kids, you're, you're going to have very, um, very small space, and it's, it's very challenging. Um, we've really worked over recent years to make it, um, for lack of a better term, more of a bread and breakfast, bread and breakfast feel just because like 
I really, I, I had, early on I had thought about my daughter and I spending a night or two, and I had people saying yes and no to me. Um, you know, I've been a single mom for 21 years, so we've moved around a lot. We've, um, you know, we've just, we've been blessed to have a lot of family support. And so I ended up not doing it, but I did spend a lot of time envisioning us there without transportation, without any money, and just knowing how difficult that would be yeah. um, to not have, right, the, the VCR back then, you know, what do you entertain your kids, you know, 12, 18 hours a day, no toys, no, you know, what would it look like without being able to get in the car to get groceries or, you know, we used to go to Foster Park a lot. We lived over there. And again, it's something free bike riding, those kinds of things. So really tried to develop more communal spaces that were um, inviting and just like you would want in your house because I felt like that's what people deserved. They didn't deserve to be in a place that looked like an institution that was dry and cold at this crisis in their life. This is when they need something that's very warm. And and then I had people say, well, they're never going to want to leave. Well, you know what? I I don't think that's true. It's still very challenging um, to live with strangers. And um, so we've really worked hard we've we've been blessed we've had a lot of different groups come in and remodels and just great stuff and a staff who's really embraced it and we want bright colors and we want positive messages and we want we want great toys we want the Wii so our kids can play you know the dance party game just like they're playing at home in your house in yeah. somebody's basement you know sure. we want that stuff for them it's good for their development it's good for their mental health and um, But this family in particular had a lot of challenges. And I remember seeing the dad outside, and he was, um, he was I think, smoking, um, which, again, you know, it's not something you want somebody with, with heart problems. And, but, you know, people get depressed, and they get, you know, they're trying to cope. But I remember thinking, you know, I bet we have some odd jobs. I bet we have painting and lawn care, and, and you know, I hope he can find a job. But... What are his barriers? You know, he's recovering. Can he get back to work? She's still on bed rest. Well, then she she had the twins, and so now they have two babies, and it's a lot. Well, the good thing was... I have twins, and remember <laughs> just how difficult that was Yes, with all of the resources right. and people to help yes. and yes. no complications. Right. Um, and so I can imagine adding some life complications Right. To that and just how overwhelming and stressful right. that was. Absolutely. And the, luckily, um, the older girls were in Northwest Allen. And I remember um, we contacted Northwest Allen um, to set up because according to McKinney Veto federal law, the children's school cannot be disrupted by the, by the crisis of homelessness. So no matter what district you're in, if somebody in Southwest Allen or Northwest Allen um, or East Allen is homeless and the child comes into Vincent House, you must provide transportation for that, that child to get back to their classroom, and rightfully so. But the school districts don't always deal with it like Fort Wayne Community does. So Northwest went, ha, ha, ha. Yeah, right. You know, we, we, cannot, we can't come out there to get children click. And the mom was very tenacious. She called down to the Department of Education. They called and said yes, and they, they called back, and they said, well, we're sorry, but we've just never dealt with this before. 
And um, so she, they were just thrilled that the children were not disrupted. And But I remember um, with the dad, I remember me wondering why I couldn't get a job. And it could, just grab a job at McDonald's. Like you're thinking, you just support your family. You know, what yeah. are the barriers? And um, finally one day in the parking lot, and I used to spend, my office was in the lower level of the basement. So I would come through the parking lot. I would see clients out and, and I would talk and just... Mm-hmm. You know, how are you? What's sure. how's your day going? As I know this is stressful. We're working really hard on your behalf. And I started talking to him and he said, you know, I'm just I'm, I'm in a predicament. He said, I don't know if I should take an eight dollar dollar an hour job or if I should go back to the work I was doing. And I said, What work were you doing? And he said, Well, I was a manager of an auto parts store and I've been in this industry, you know, for a very long time. He was in his early fifties. And he said, Denise, before I got sick, you know, I was making, you know, seventy-five, eighty $80,000 a year. And in my mind, it just blew my mind because I had stereotyped, here's somebody that's probably doing odd, odd jobs. It's a high school dropout that just yeah. maybe wasn't motivated. Right. And I just had to catch myself and say, wow, you know, you really don't know a story until you hear it from somebody. Yeah. And so we actually found a volunteer of ours that um, was a retired HR guy, and he had actually um, said if there was any mentoring or coaching he could do. And we just don't have that many dads. Now, of course, you know, we'll take a single dad, dad with a, um, you know, that's part of a family. Um, but as far as, you know, our caseworkers, you know, we're, we're, we're a lot of women, our maintenance team, we do have a second shift resident advisor that's a man, and I thought, this guy had mentioned to me he would volunteer. And so I set the two of them up together, and it proved to be really fruitful in just having somebody to talk to and talk through the strategy on employment. Because, you know, um, what was happening, he was interviewing with these very young guys, and they, you know, were hearing about all his experience. And then it's like, oh, well, no, you know, we want to pay 25. <laughs> and so it's just, he was he was in a bind, but... The long story short is he got into, um, you know, back into that industry, not making that wage, but making a decent wage. They moved out into one of our houses. And, but, you know, some of the issues that plague families, they just don't disappear. And when you have a chronic health problem, unfortunately, many times it keeps rearing its ugly head. And um, we've seen people, I've seen people over the last years I've been there, seems like they have more serious health problems at younger and younger ages. And so um, they were very stable. And then a couple years ago, he um, had another episode of heart failure and was diagnosed needing a transplant. One of the one of the biggest lessons I've learned in all my time in NeighborLink, and especially because I got involved as a volunteer before becoming the director, is uh, a recognition. The more time you spend uh, working in the margins or with people in vulnerable situations that you come from a position of resource or stability and you interact is just how important the story is. And the reality that we're all a few uh, life choices, a few choices that and or life circumstances away from needing the care and dependency of of others or supportive services. And uh, that awareness is such a an important part, I believe, of this type of work. One, you and I and our teams and organizations like ours understand that because we this is our jobs and our careers. 
those organizations that are trying to reconnect and redistribute both time and resources we both do a lot of fundraising a lot of relationship building and facilitate a lot of volunteers and a lot of volunteers are coming to us because they initially want to start with understanding that they have something to give uh they have resources to share maybe they don't fully know the depth of why they want to get involved they just feel compelled in some way uh, and or being socially motivated to do so but they come and they interact and they uh, through a tr- very transactional way, help us. And those that stick around and over time usually interact with and have an experience similar to what you just described in terms of you bump up against and you start interacting, building a relationship with somebody that you connect with and you hear their story and the narrative is much different than what you anticipated and or gets described about poverty-related demographics. So your your point of starting that out and saying, look, everyone is so different and they're in different stories. Yes, we could probably generalize in some areas, uh, but the story is so important and the encouragement, especially around neighboring, and especially back to your, your statement about the Oxford neighborhood and their long history of like ownership and they have this community space and they have a goal and intentionality. One of the challenging parts, at least in this work, the more that I learn about more comprehensive development and neighborhood development and or trying to do a lot with little is thinking, changing a a mindset from uh, a mindset that says we don't have enough resources and only the the outside saving grace resources are going to fix this particular area to more of an abundance and a connecting mindset and saying if no outside dollars come in or or we we have what we have is in our pockets or what do we do with it and that requires some relational engagement as well something i know that vincent village has been doing i'm curious um going in that route if you have uh, a story that you're comfortable sharing that that kind of remains and preserves the dignity of the story but what happens when uh, despite the best efforts of all of your teams it just doesn't work like somebody uh, just doesn't make it through the program or something doesn't happen. And I know in your guys' case, you live in a neighborhood that, that does have a higher crime rate than others. And if not in the neighborhood, adjacent to the neighborhood, and it gets mixed up and that impacts your community. So curious if you have a story that you'd be willing to share that, uh, that just illustrates when yeah. despite our best efforts. It's, you it's know, awesome. it doesn't always work. Um, and that's something I've struggled with because I, I internalize it. I said, what did, where did we go wrong? What did we do wrong? What could we have done better to, to exit a family back into homelessness is extremely painful for everybody involved, especially the family, but for people like myself and my team that are very vested and, um, want to really look at people like family, treat people like the family they don't have and have that kind of um, relationship where you're just not, they're just not a client, but they're really getting that um, support and encouragement, hugs, um, kudos. Um, We're driving around the block I see people out we're waving I'm pulling over chatting with them just just it 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 can be awesome but there's times when it doesn't work um there's really in the last three years I actually just pulled some of our data for um 
uh, graduate student that was doing a study, and, and we'll have a report coming out about evictions in Fort Wayne, but um, in the last three years, um, we, we've just re, re, really in the last you know, five, six years had to really just develop strong policies around being a landlord because the truth is everybody is struggling. If we make exceptions, um, we just wouldn't get our rent. And and we've been privately subsidizing about $90,000 a year with private donor money into people's rent and rental discounts based on their year out of homelessness. So we even have families that might be paying $250 a month and they're still not able to pay their rent for whatever reason. So we have to, you know, by this date, if it's not paid, we offer three payment arrangements on rent that have yeah. to come in by the first. So we've developed a lot. It's, it's developing a lot of policies to help people be successful. But then at the, at the end of the day, we just have to set some kind of boundaries. Yeah. And that's what's so difficult to do um, because, um, you know, there was a case um, – I want to say about two years ago where we actually went through with the eviction and the client had, um, I want to say she was, she was in year two, just paying $250 a month, but she was working part-time. She wasn't really, um, you know, we were coaching. You can't, you've got to get full-time, but I love my job, but you know, and just coaching, 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 meeting, budgeting, coaching. And, um, you know, we knew we were, we obviously know we're filing. So the landlord basically, you know, tells a social worker, you know, this is what you need to go over with your client. They're behind on rent. And it's up to the social worker to go into high gear to say, how are we helping this client get this rent paid? We don't want to go into an eviction. And the landlord just kind of hands it off there. Um, and, um, you know, in the last three years, um, out of, I want to say, 23 times, we've had one actually go through. And it's hard. Um, she thought somebody was loaning her the money up until the morning of the court hearing, and they didn't. Mm-hmm. And it's it's tough. And, you know, we just we work to come up with some kind of plan so you don't have parents and kids on the street and... Um, so uh, we've also had a case where, um, you know, we've worked for over a year, um, you know, with people that aren't able to work with the township and other resources to get their rent covered. Their disability might come in, but occasionally there's an underlying addiction yeah. that if somebody won't get treatment for that we're monitoring and we're saying we require you to get treatment and you know they're refusing and um the money isn't coming in for the rent and we have to so we had a recent case of that that was extremely uh, difficult luckily the family had gotten the the parent that was very very ill had gotten the disability and then at the same time they had gotten a housing choice voucher so for the sake of the kids we knew there was going to be some housing stability there was income now in the family um but it was still um, exiting out of all of our wraparound services, which are really extensive for the kids. And even when the kids are in the shelter, um, they're doing so many activities and have so many caring, loving adults around them that um, sometimes when they move, it's very isolating. They don't have toys. They don't have friends. Sometimes parents can't let them out of the house because 
you know, you stay in here until I sure. get home from work. And it, it's hard. I mean, it's even, it's tougher when they're in their own house um, because they just don't have all, all the access to all that. And um, so, yeah, it, there's occasion when it doesn't, um, when it doesn't work out. And uh, even in the Vincent house, we went to a zero tolerance for all drugs and alcohol uh, about four or five years ago just because we had to because yeah. you can't have a group of people living communally with yeah. 35 children and have people coming in having thrown back three beers after work or you know having smoke pot and then say oh well, I'm going to go to a meeting tomorrow well no that sure. like we just had to say you know what yeah. we're going to set the bar high and that is something that we've been doing um, we're just we, we, we set the bar and we want to help people reach their full potential but not everybody's ready for that. So yeah. we realize it, and we realize we have an array of other community resources that are a better fit. Sure. And so that's something to have to say, we are not the best fit for everyone. Somebody just has to be ready to make changes. And sometimes rules, you know, in any situation might seem arbitrary, but we just have to set some kind of bottom line. So there are cases in the Vincent House where we have to exit um, a family. One of the, I'm curious what you would say, um, shy of somebody just bringing five, $10 million to, to Vincent Village and, you know, allowing you to, to move forward in the initiatives. What do you feel like when you think in terms of neighborhood development and or, you know, how does, how does a neighborhood like Oxford truly transform to become a much different socioeconomic uh, quality of life, all of those different things in a neighborhood shy of somebody just coming in and spending mm-hmm. a lot of money. Like mm-hmm. that's, you know, part of it maybe, but in the case of neighborhood development, moving a neighborhood towards an idealistic in some ways perspective, but the thing that we all have vision for no matter what our economics look like. I'm sure it's the same for each one of these 45% of the homeowners. They have a vision. We mm-hmm. all have a vision for where mm-hmm. for where we would like our neighborhoods to mm-hmm. be. What do you think from your experience, uh, what does that look like? What, what ideas um, do you have that aren't just, we need somebody to come in here and just redevelop right. 100% of it? Right. Well, I, I, I do serve on the Oxford Association, so I hear a lot of the conversation that's happening. And one of the things that um, our neighbors want is um, uh, fewer abandoned houses, fewer houses sitting boarded up. And Would they um, rather have them torn down or redeveloped in those they'd conversations? They'd rather have them redeveloped. Okay. One of the issues is um, with um, the properties that are owned by landlords. Sure. Um, that they are dilapidated, the landlords, you know, they would like to see landlords take greater pride in their homes. Yeah, um, sure. Bringing them not up only to code, but um, just investing more in them. The problem with that is then you cut into, um, you know, the profit margin of the landlord. There's all sorts of landlords, too, that I've learned. Yeah, that's a whole we have a number of neighborhood people that own two or three houses. Yeah. There's a difference um, between uh, an absentee landlord and somebody that lives within the neighborhood, usually, in yeah. terms of what you see yeah. in their properties. Besides uh, rental properties, what else is the neighborhood really kind of, what would they determine makes a healthy neighborhood or would make their neighborhood healthier than what it is? Well, they've been talking. 
talking um, about sidewalks, we've been working on our sidewalks. Yeah. So um, we've we've had a dad in the shelter in a wheelchair, and he's literally had to go down the middle of the street yeah. because he cannot get down our street. And we've had kids trying to ride bikes, and you know they hit a fly off, and those kinds of things. But um, one of the things that um, there's been lots of talk about is some kind of a place, uh, gathering space, a coffee shop. I, you know, when we were putting together Bottle Works with the developer Miller Valentine, I was dreaming back then of, then of a coffee shop. Yeah. It didn't come true just because of the way the commercial space is more offices. Yeah. Because that's how it was originally sure. designed and they can't change the historic architecture. So that didn't work out. But I am talking with a um, owner. And actually, the other neat thing that's been happening is I've been meeting with people that grew up in the neighborhood. They don't live there anymore, but they're very vested and they're very mm. wanting to get involved and be part of the solution. And actually, two of the people I'm talking to are young men um, that are in their you know 40s that are experienced great success, moved out of Fort Wayne, come yeah. back to see family. Yeah. But with both, I've been around the neighborhood just talking about what we can do. One happens to be um, buying some properties, and he has been. And one of the properties he bought was the old VFW on Winter Street, which is across from the Johnny Lee Farm, which um, is a city-owned building and um, and a partnership. The Cooperative Extension is managing the farm right now. There's a farm stand every Friday, and it's really breathed some life into that you know, into that area. And um, I know last year when um, we did an end-of-the-year food giveaway, um, and it started at like 4 o'clock, and by, you know, 3.30 there was 100 people lined up for yeah. free vegetables and a lot of seniors. So it was a very telling of what some of the needs were, and obviously food yeah. insecurity is one yeah. of them. So how can we address that? Where is the, the nearest food pantry? Mm-hmm. You know, can we be more proactive? We put a little free pantry up there, and we're with some other agencies trying to make sure that's kept. But so what? What he bought the VFW, and um, actually last summer I was volunteering at the farm and at the farm stand, and he came across and he said, "Oh, this is the first time I've seen my building that I bought sight unseen. I live in California. I'm from Fort Wayne." think he may have gone to Northside and I said what are you going to do with it he said what do you guys want me to do with it and I said well it's time to have you know community conversation I said I still am dreaming of a coffee shop yeah and I said there's actually a coffee shop in a neighborhood that I used to live in um the friendly fox and I said I'm going to give you the address I want you to go visit it because that's what I envision for our neighborhood and I said to be honest you know I wasn't certain that that could be sustainable in the neighborhood um and it has been and it's a staple it's um I just I just think it's really just been an amazing addition to that neighborhood and could we have something sure. like that. So I think actually um, he's in town right now and um, we're going to be getting together this week and just talking about that and when he's going to get started on it. And so, you know, again, we've got a little corner store. Eh, we're not really thrilled with it. Sure. Um, is it meeting the needs of people? Yes. Is it doing what we need? Yeah, sure. No. 
Um, but there's some economic uh, activity and some entrepreneurship happening, and the more that that stuff happens, it shows signs that there's there's a market and there's an opportunity. Right, and until right. some of that stuff happens, it's really hard to, especially right. in our more conservative community, right. to really attract um, additional investments. Right, right. And could we even... You know, there's been some groups of us, including my staff and some of the churches, um, you know, that that folks are associated with saying, could we even start our own store? Yeah. And what would that look like? Now, if I come up with one more brilliant idea between my board and my staff, (laughs) I'll probably be fired. So Uh, my staff is uh, (laughs) tired of my ideas, too. So. So so again, can we have other groups that. are really wanting to become more vested. Yeah. The chapel's been a great partner. Um, Pathways is interested. Um, St. Vincent's sure. is, is coming forward with um, lots of efforts with us. Well, Vincent's there certainly parish. is, um, from my my radar, there are certainly more and more groups that are that are looking at um, what is it what does it look like to to facilitate neighborhood development and and not just in let's bring some resources and fix some stuff but like what does it what does it truly look like from uh, a community development which includes an economic development let's take right. a smart approach let's not come in right. and try to fix something and leave it let's right. let's come and start something here and right. or empower others to start right things here that are from the neighborhood that want to so it's right. exciting to see some yeah. Of that. Yeah, so there's there is a lot of good things going mm-hmm. on. I just had come from a meeting with Kevin Beggs, and they've got new houses. Um, we put a new house on Lily. I think they put four or five new houses on Lily <laughs> sure. with a tax credit project. So we are filling in yeah. some of those blighted lots. So there's lots going on with that, and um, Bottle Works, the Head Start. Um, uh, Nicole Ridley is working with uh, St. Peter's and. Um, the um, um, Zion Lutheran on a project that that may you know they're trying to attract a grocer and housing sure. over there. So there there's movement. Um, it is I think um, can be stifled sometimes by a little bit of a stigma of you know this is a bad neighborhood. Yeah. Which I tell people I feel like it's a very small group of people that are yeah. ruining it for the whole neighborhood. It's not indicative of the neighborhood. Yeah. Um and and I think the other thing that's been happening at least what I've been seeing in the last couple years is is crime is all over our city and um it is a problem um and it's not in any just one pocket anymore. Um, if anybody owns a ring doorbell and you can pull reports on your city's crime, um, I actually turned my notifications off because it was going off every, you know, couple hours, just everywhere in the city, um, it happening. So, uh, I was thrilled 10 point coalition is there. I think it's creating hope. Um, they've been making relationships with some of our tenants. They're listening they're on the ground seeing what some of the real issues are. So I was thrilled because a few years before that, we actually had to hire our own police patrol um, just because we had, um, you know, an incident with a dad in a wheelchair in front of the shelter that got held up uh, at gunpoint by a kid and really just scared everybody. We thought, you know, um, could could somebody get... Um, Could something bad happen? What could we do to make people feel safer? And so ever since then, we've been paying. We pay about $10,000 a year 
uh, for an off-duty um, officer in, a, in their, um, now we have a sheriff's officer, and she sits in different pockets. She also gets out of her car when yeah. she sees, you know, um, she checks on our vacant houses if we have any. She talks to our kids. She talks to our parents, and it just, I think it's it's brings something to the neighborhood that, Again, you want to be proactive and you want to have that um, kind of a community policing relationship to where people don't just see law enforcement as um, I need to be on the defensive. Yeah. Like we could actually have a conversation um, and hear somebody that wants to be helpful and and at least hear my concerns. So we've done that. Well, that sounds like another comprehensive approach from how an outside, how an organization can, can really come alongside a neighborhood. Um, As we wrap up here, we have one final question. What do you think it means to be a good neighbor? You know, I, I think when your neighbors need something, you respond. And I think we, um, Vincent Village is a good neighbor. Uh, we see people with their cars stuck in snow. We see people with their batteries dead. Um, we may get five cases of raspberries and see our neighbors out on the porch. And we bring them over. We share. We talk. We ask people for their insight. We invite. Um, we... Um, I think it's just um, being um, being accepting of everybody in their unique situation, but um, just inviting everybody to be part of a conversation. It's a wave. It's uh, picking up trash in the street. It's setting an example, uh, leading by example, um, and uh, you know it's it's. We have meetings on the on the front porch. We've we, you know, intervene. We found children out in the cold that lost their house key that literally were could have been a very bad situation. You know, we react to things that are happening in our neighborhood, even though they're not our clients. And I think just having your eyes open because you can always be helpful. And and we find that time after time that. it can get us sidetracked, right? You're you're getting drawn into neighborhood issues, and we can get a little sidetracked yeah. because sometimes we just have people knocking on our door saying, "I know somebody that yeah. is sleeping in their car. Can you help?" Yeah. And and it's just it's it's making that time, even though you may not have it. It's just saying this is super worthwhile, and we just we we have to do it. It's it's good for everybody if we all have that attitude. We can just create a better quality of life for everybody, whether you're in a $20,000 house or in a $250,000 house. Yeah. It's about relationships. Sure. Excellent. Denise, thank you for your time. Thanks for your commitment to Vince Village. And uh, I know I'm sure that you're bored in the community and everyone is appreciative of all the investment and the growth that has happened in the last few years. We're excited to see what happens next. Thanks again. Well, thanks, uh, Denise Andorfer of Vincent Village for uh, your hard work and dedication to the forming community and specifically the Oxford neighborhood. Um, thanks for tuning in to this episode of Neighboring. We'll be back with next week with another neighbor as we attempt to learn what makes healthy neighborhoods healthy.